When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. of people know me from celebrity roasts and whenever I show up at a celebrity roast and I look at the dais and I see Jeff Ross is there I know I can't slack off because Jeff Ross is a master roaster he's been called the roast master general he's a comedian comedy writer and he knows about old school comedians. He, he was at the Friars Club and just would talk and socialize with all the old timers. He was friends with Milton Berle. And uh, yes, we do touch upon the famous legend of Milton Berle. So stay tuned. Ladies and gentlemen, Jeff Ross. This is Gilbert Gottfried's amazing, colossal podcast, and I'm here with my co-host, Frank Santo Padre. Hi, Gilbert. And, and usually we have a... Don't interrupt. Sorry. Usually uh, we like to have comedians on the show, but this time, luckily, we have a singer. Uh, let's hear it for uh, the dulcet tones of Jeff Ross. Hello, Frank. Hello, Gilbert. Hi, yes. Jeffrey. <laughs> You are sort of beautiful <laughs> to me. I keep my guitar around the house. It keeps me company. Yes. Thanks for coming down, fellas. What an honor to be on the, uh, what is it, third episode of your shitty podcast? Yes. <laughs> what a treat. It's been my dream for days now to be on this podcast. It's actually like the 11th episode. Don't get carried away with yourself. Yeah, this is a real treat. Thanks for coming over to my house with a sound guy and three sets of headphones. Uh, it's great. These hostage videos have a bigger budget than this. It's great. Gilbert Gottfried has a podcast because looking at him is tough. So if we listen to him, it's great. Yeah, turn up the volume, folks. This is one you really you want to hear Gilbert at full full volume today. Gilbert, you could do a podcast yes. just by talking out the window. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody would hear you anyway. 
this is pointless to try to tape it and record it. Just, just, just stand on the roof of your building, and the whole country can hear you. It's great. You got Frank here to add no personality. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> why don't you tell us about Jerry Lewis? Your What's night that? Out. Why don't you tell about your night out last night? Last night I had a, there was an Abbott's dinner at the Friars Club for Jerry Lewis. It's the anniversary of um, the Nutty Professor, so mm-hmm. he had a little party, mm-hmm. which was really fun. I mean, that's the thing about uh, the Friars Club, and Gilbert knows this, is you get to meet, you know, your legends, you know, people you grew up admiring, like Shecky Green, for instance. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I got to see his ass as he was running out on my act. Unbelievable. Uh, I have my own thoughts about that, but we can talk about that later. Oh, that's good. Jerry I, Lewis. I, I like a guest who's ready to talk off the air. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm saying you want to talk about Jerry Lewis first, then we can talk oh, about oh, Shecky okay. Green. Okay, let's talk about Jerry first, because I think he's a little bigger than Shecky Green. Probably. Yeah. It was super fun. Jerry looks great. He was so funny. He made a great speech, and... Um, I said, uh, Jerry Lewis is the recipient of such an honor knowing you, Jerry. Is the, he's the recip- a lot of people don't know he's the recipient of the French Legion of Honor medal, which is the uh, equivalent here in America of, say, winning a Latin Grammy. <laughs> <laughs> I said, Jerry Lewis is big in France. Then again, the French don't even know when they stink. <laughs> <laughs> it was super fun. Larry King was there, the former hunchback of CNN. <laughs> it was a great time. I said, Larry King is to comedy what Martin Luther King was to comedy. I love it. <laughs> it was fun. Brought up some classics. Now, now you knew Milton Berle. That's right. Yes. There's a picture of him in this house right over there. Okay. Of my we very first we roast. Yeah. yeah, it's great. Milton's last roast as Roastmaster was the first one that I was ever invited to be a part of. Did you know that? No. Yeah. Was that the Stephen Seagal roast? It was uh, in 1995, I think mm-hmm. it actually was. Uh, a roast of Stephen Seagal. It was right after a year where they couldn't get anybody. They, they roasted uh, Whoopi Goldberg the year before. And uh, there was all this controversy with Ted Danson. Oh, black in blackface. Uh, yes. Which, you know, at the roast anything goes, so... Um, the next year, you know, maybe it wasn't as hip to do the roast, and I got the call as an unknown comedian from Greenwich Village. Um, they'd seen me at a golf tournament uh, making fun of Freddie, Freddie Roman. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so they said, oh, he's kind of roasty. He could probably do it. And I didn't, back then, you, didn't, you couldn't YouTube what the roasts were. The roasts were only these private events, so I had to go to the Museum of Broadcasting, and I looked up the roasts. Uh, Dean Martin and all that stuff and I kind of got a feel for how you make fun of not just the honoree but the other people I didn't care about Steven Seagal so then I saw oh I can make fun of Milton Berle and Henny Youngman and Buddy Hackett and I go oh alright well it's more about camaraderie I get that and you know the best joke wins kind of a thing you have to have smart jokes it's a good audience so I worked weeks on it and I had my one nice uh, suit that I bought for the Letterman show and I went up to the New York uh, Hilton, probably 1,500 people, and uh, it was like my arena. I loved it right away, just to see all those people packed into a ballroom at noon. Mm-hmm. 
which for a comedian is the middle of the night. <laughs> I, I, I only slept a few hours, but my eyes were wide open. I couldn't, and you had, you know, socialites and politicians and movie directors, and suddenly I wasn't just doing comedy downtown for a bunch of drunks and stoners. It was like, oh, this is like sober comedy. This is smart witty, you know, uh, roasting. It was totally different. And uh, Milton Berle was hosting, and it was just crazy to just see him live in person saying dirty words. Because <laughs> you never saw that in clips or anything. Wasn't he poking you in the ribs through the whole... He finally brought me on, <laughs> and um, towards the end, it wasn't a particularly great roast. Um, Steven Seagal was not necessarily a good sport. He was wearing... His ridiculous karate suit, like you, you'd so, think, Steven Seagal would be the funniest guy there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he his movie, um, uh, oh, what was it called? Oh yeah, one of his crazy, hard to kill. No, not even that good. Under Siege, <laughs> Under Siege Two. I'm sorry, I know oh, that. Two had I apologize. just come out. So not, not as good as one. No. I think yeah. it was actually better than <laughs> yeah. one. Was what people say. Oh. <laughs> Not as, none of them were as good as three and four, though. <laughs> Movies always get better the more you make. They get better at it. You know, under siege, he would just get fatter, everyone. <laughs> but I never really saw his movies. You know, it wasn't really, he wasn't the draw for me. The draw for me was being able to write special material, practice my joke writing, and then have these great comics around. Just, it would have been a cool story, you know? So I did it for the adventure. And I went up there, and Milton Berle gave me a terrible introduction. He, I didn't know him. He didn't know me, obviously. He said, our next comedian is uh, just back from Las Vegas, where he emceed a convention for lesbians with dildo rash. Jeff Ross. <laughs> <laughs> he just plugged me into one of his joke file jokes. And it was just off and running. I looked out, and I said, a lot of you don't know me. I looked out at this huge crowd. A lot of you don't know me, but I feel... I looked at Steven Seagal. He was right to my left. Uh, I feel uniquely... But I feel uniquely qualified to be here today because I'm also a shitty actor. <laughs> <laughs> so it was self-deprecating, but also a great joke on Steven Seagal. And um, I had a few good ones, and every time I got a big laugh, Milton had these giant fingers with pointy fingernails yeah and every time i got a big laugh he was sitting right next to me on the other side he would zet poke me right in the ribs and i would jump i would flinch every time i got an applause break or a big laugh he boom he poked me really hard and the only person who'd ever done that um in my life was when i was at my bar mitzvah my cantor <laughs> did it to relax me like <laughs> while i was doing my haftorah he, I remember him poking me yeah. a little bit, and I never understood it. And because that had happened one other time in my life, I kind of let it go for a while. Yeah. So I, I just figured it's something Milton's doing to make uh, me not nervous. I, I don't think I even, I didn't have the time to think about why he was doing it. I had 1,500 people watching me do my first roast. I was so, was it that Milton couldn't stand the idea of someone else getting a laugh? I only figured that out later yeah but in the moment i was just sort of exasperated and after a few pokes i looked at him and i was like what are you doing <laughs> i stopped <laughs> i stopped and uh and he used that as an opportunity to leap up and start heckling me <laughs> just, just 
So in other words, <laughs> he was just not going to let me go on a roll without him being involved. So I said, oh, a lot of, you never know what you're going to see walking around New York. I was just riffing. I yeah. said, I was walking around downtown yesterday. I saw Milton in an antique shop, 1200 bucks. <laughs> Which is really just an old Angela Lansbury joke yeah. I did on Letterman a couple of weeks earlier. Uh-huh. And um, uh, it worked. Like, he came back at me, and then, you know, I was holding my own for a couple of rounds with Milton. And finally, way down at the far end of the dais, Buddy Hackett, who didn't even have a microphone, but he had that booming voice that everyone knew. He just said, Milton, let the kid work. Remember when you used to? <laughs> And Milton took off down the end of the dais and just planted one on Buddy Hackett's lips. Wow. And I said, oh, Buddy Hackett and Milton, bro, between the two of them, they have over 100 years of homosexual experience. (laughs) (laughs) Made no sense, but it was just off Milton's kiss. And and, um, that was it. Uh, Milton gave me a nice round of applause, and I sat back down, and we all went back to the club. And I, I was having a drink with Buddy Hackett. And I, it was just like, here I was with these, the Mount Rosemore of comedy. Here they were. And I said to Buddy, why do you think Milton would have done that to me? What was going on there? What? He said, oh, he just can't take it when comedians are getting big laughs. So he wants to be disruptive. Wow. Trial by fire. So, um, and then I went to Milton. And Milton didn't drink, but he was at a different part of the Friars Club after party the after party and I said you know Mr. Burl that was so exciting that was my first roast is there any advice you could give me you know not addressing what he did directly just to see uh, I don't know why and, and uh, he said uh, he said you know what I remember for him saying was basically they only remember the home runs in other words you don't need to be on for 10 minutes you can be on with just the big big you know swings so maybe I was going on too long, or maybe I'd, I'd have a huge joke and then a little joke, and he, I didn't know what was going to work. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like I could go to the comedy cellar and try out roast jokes. I might as well <laughs> yeah. be talking Latin. They didn't know what a roast was. It was a lost art, like jousting or journalism or something. <laughs> so I, 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 uh, I took a lot from that, and I do still think about that. In other words, they only remember the home runs. I try to keep my sets tight and... And, you know, big swings only. Fun, fun day. I have pictures of it in my house. And Milton was, uh, he was around after that. And we became friends. But um, he, ha- he didn't host another roast after that. Now, uh, of course, if you discuss Milton Berle, you have to get to one subject. Of course. His penis. Yes. What do you want to know? So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> have you seen it? Uh, I have it in a box in my living room. <laughs> it's next to a Henny Youngman's violin. I did get a glimpse of it once. I don't know if I've ever told this story. Milton Berle's penis, ladies and gentlemen. We were at the Friars Club in Beverly Hills, and uh, he was very frail at the time. He might have even have been in his wheelchair. And um, why is that funny? <laughs> I'm just, I'm thinking wheelchair and penis. <laughs> this is, there's something very... <laughs> well, that reminds me of another joke. Okay. <laughs> I was at a birthday party for Sid Caesar. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Did you see his penis? Not yet. No. Okay. Re- roast him, may he rest in peace. May his, him and his penis rest in peace. 
But Milton was there, and the I was doing Sid Caesar's birthday party. I was a young comedian that they had on the show, and was, otherwise it was all Sid's pals. And uh, but Sid liked me, and he asked me to do this thing, which I believe is even out there somewhere. You could buy it in one of the Sid Caesar's uh, DVD collector sets of my birthday show for Sid Caesar. I was at that show. Oh, you were. I was there. Well, there Sid you go. Caesar's, and, yep, it was a great night. Thanks. Stan you. Lee was there, and you were on. And Milton Berle, uh, I introduced, you know, I said, oh, it's such a treat to be here for Sid. And I see, you know, the great Milton Berle is here, and uh, he brought a wheelchair for his cock. <laughs> and Milton leaped right out of his wheelchair and started coming back at me as he, as he, as he often would. And he was a great guy, Milton. He, uh, he called me once. I forgot exactly why. It was some friar's roast business. But he called me once uh, in a hotel, and uh, we were, I was in Montreal for a gig, and the phone in the hotel rings back, you know, a long time ago now, and, uh, you know, it's Milton Berle. And, of course, I'm like, hello, Alon. <laughs> I thought it was Elon Gold doing an impression of Milton Berle. <laughs> <laughs> there was no way Milton Burrow had tracked me down at a hotel in Montreal, but he did. And um, we became lunch buddies. We would often sit at the Friars Club in Beverly Hills, and he got me smoking cigars. He put one uh, uh, in my nostril. No, in his nostril. He had that big, big nostrils. Oh, yeah. And he, he said, uh, you don't smoke? No, I don't smoke. And uh, he stuck one in his nostril deep, and... Uh, <sighs> He inhaled. He said, if it smells like horse shit, it's a real Cubano. <laughs> and then he took that out of his nostril and popped it right in my mouth. <laughs> he said that Fidel Castro sent him a box of Cuban cigars every Christmas, which I have no reason to believe is not true, since he played Havana in the old days. Wow. Now, but you did see his penis. And on a, one of those lunch days. Because you, you got sidetracked. I did. <laughs> <laughs> um... <laughs> I was eating lunch with him, and he uh, asked for help getting uh, up out of his chair and over to the men's room. He's very, very old and very frail at this point in his life. And uh, he went into the men's room, and he was, you know, urinating at the urinal, uh, you know, with one shoulder kind of leaning up against the partition because he was, he was weak, but... <laughs> And then I just said, you know what? Fuck it. I'm going to go pee next to him. <laughs> you know, maybe Gilbert Godfrey will have a podcast someday. On in the last minute, if I'd ever see Milton Burrow's penis. Very so. fresh interview. So I did. I, I you know, uh, I tried to look straight ahead at how my eyes go to the side. And you know what? It was gigantic. It was fucking gigantic. Milton Berle had a huge cock. <laughs> it's nice to meet your heroes, isn't it, Jeff? Not be disappointed. Well, there was two heroes at once, Milton <laughs> so and his cock. It was like long and wide? You know, he was yeah. peeing. <laughs> this is more detail yeah, than okay. I anticipated, but he was peeing. So Tell me hand, about the veins and everything. But I saw a lot of girth. You know, I saw, and that's what I remember. I never saw the whole thing because yeah. his hand was covering a big portion of it. Uh, I should say a small portion of it. And uh, uh, he knew I saw it. There's no question yes. that he wasn't giving me the opening. I mean, at some point, he, I think that he, 
you know, passing the torch, if you will. He wanted uh, one more witness from the younger generation to know that these weren't just jokes uh, made up out of thin air. That the legendary jokes about Milton Berle's penis were indeed based in reality. I said it. I was roasting one of the Yankees once, Joe Torre, in New York, and Milton was there. And uh, for some reason, uh, you know, Milton, uh, I wanted to work him into my baseball jokes. I said, Milton Berle's cock is so big it has a warning track. (laughs) (laughs) Somewhere there's a tape you can hear Milton and Billy Crystal laughing. The old days. So, this is fun. So, so you you've confirmed that Milton Berle has a giant cock. Had a giant cock. Right. May it rest in peace. May it roast in peace. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, who? Okay, and you knew uh, Buddy Hackett, of course. Well, of course, Alan King. Alan King here in New York, and Buddy Hackett out in L.A. And Buddy became sort of a mentor, didn't he? Buddy was a good buddy, very very good pal of mine. Yep. Okay. He. Uh, I met him at the Friars Club as well. Um, we were in the ele- I was in the elevator going to... Uh, this is before this roast, even. Yeah. <clears throat> before I ever saw him you know, perform. You know, I saw him perform when I was a beginner, a comedian. But um, the first time I actually met him was in the elevator at the Friars Club. I was going up to play poker with Greg Fitzsimmons and Elon Gold. And um, that was a big deal to get invited to the Friars to play poker because mm-hmm. we'd always play poker in our crappy studio apartments, you know. And suddenly we were able to go eat with a waiter taking care of us and fancy clay chips. And you're at the Friars Club. You never know who you're going to see. So I'm taking the elevator up to the card room, the George Burns uh, card room, uh, poker room, whatever it's called. And we stop on the second floor and Buddy sort of waddles on with that walk of his. And, oh, man, I'm like, wow. Uh, there's Buddy, you know, so I got to say something. Mr. Hackett, I just want to say uh, you were my parents' favorite comedian, and, I, you know, uh, I'm a comedian also, and it's just such an honor to meet you. And he shook my hand, he looked me right in the eyes, he said, you know who hates farts the most? <laughs> Midgets. <laughs> they live at ass height. <laughs> and the elevator opened up, and he walked off, and he didn't say anything else. That's brilliant. I didn't see him again till at uh, Steven Seagal roast. <laughs> now, you also knew, as, as I also uh, hung out with him like a handful of times, Henny Youngman. You know, I didn't know Henny as well. Did you know him well? I, I, I remember, I, I ran into him a handful of times and had lunch with him once. When and I was a little kid, my Aunt Bess... Um, Took me to the Carnegie Deli before a matinee. She would take me to Broadway shows. She was, she had, you know, basically, you know, a, a widow and she had a little more money than everyone else in the family. So if I wanted to see something or, you know, so she would take me to matinees, whatever. And I was probably 12, 11. We walk into the Carnegie Deli and Henny Youngman's at a front table there. And. I kind of knew who he was. You know, you knew the name. He looked familiar. I kind of got it. Yeah. But I remember that my aunt said, oh, Henny. And, she, you know, he kind of recognized her the way we do with, you know, and, and uh, right away she said, how's uh, 
whatever Henny's sister's name was. It was an old, like, how's Biddy or something like that? <laughs> or how's Janet, you know? And Henny, oh, yeah, yeah, oh, she's fine. And they talked about, uh, you know, uh, old friends for a second. And Henny gave me a card, which I still have, that has a music note on it. And I remember seeing, and I, I went to that deli a couple of times last week after my shows at Caroline's. And uh, I thought about that moment, because now here I am, the comedian, sitting there. And it's just so fascinating because Henny worked and worked and worked. He always seemed to either need or want a gig. And I remember right up until he was in a wheelchair, him showing up at stuff that I would be doing around town. Uh, we would do a sketch on the USA Network or uh, a tribute to somebody at the Friars Club. And Henny would be there still working, still loving it, still in the gig. You know, they would have to feed him the lines one by one. He was very old. I think he probably lived to his 90s, right? And I, I just was inspired by the fact that uh, he, there was still a place that you could walk into, the Friars Club, where Henny Youngman got treated like royalty, even when most of the rest of the world had forgotten about him. He still could walk in and sit at a table uh, at the Friars with the Leroy Neiman portrait of him right on his side and make him feel good. You know, that's... To me, you know, one of the great things about the Friars Club is that uh, it's like, you know, everyone still knows your name. I, I remember hearing a story about Henny Youngman that he was working somewhere in a hotel and he was going down the elevator uh, after his or between he was doing two shows that night. And in between, he was going to go back to his room and this guy comes in, he goes, uh, I'm getting married. Can you uh, tell some jokes at my wedding? And he said, all right, like $100. And they passed around the hat. Really? He got wow. off the elevator in between floors, got off the elevator, went to the wedding, wow. performed, and then went back for the second show. Wow. For $100? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you think he just loved the... He didn't need the hundred dollars, yeah. did he? I I don't know, but he made a hundred just for uh, five minutes. Where did you eat lunch with him? Uh, oh, I I remember we had the same agent at the time, William Morrissey. Yeah, he'd always do jokes about that, right? Oh yes, and um, he uh, comes up to me. He's he's walking down the street with his violin case. And I put my hand out to shake hands, and he hands me the violin case. <laughs> <laughs> and we go into the restaurant, and he says to the maitre d', he says, uh, give us a table, near a waiter. <laughs> and then when we're walking to the table, a pretty girl walks by, and he goes, you look tired. Why don't you go up to my room and lay down? <laughs> <laughs> and then he, we order, and then he says... Uh, Waiter, call the police. And he goes, why? He goes, because our food's being held up in the kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> and then he said, are you married? And I said, no. And he said, what do you do for aggravation? <laughs> <laughs> One time I was walking. <laughs> That's great. One time I was walking on 55th Street. I had just become a member of the Friars Club. And he was still sort of, uh, you know... Uh, it was very probably in the mid '90s, so he he was still walking in, and and uh, I was probably ten feet behind him. You know, he didn't really know me yeah. at that point, but I see Henny Youngman's walking in ahead of me, so you know I'm watching him. 
And as we're crossing the street, a pigeon lands right by his feet. And he goes, anybody call? (laughs) Any messages? He said, any messages? He did it for himself. That was what was so great about it. He didn't know I was behind him. Nobody was with him. He did it for himself. Which, you know, at a certain point, it's a reflex, right? Any messages? And Jeff Jeff looked at him and said, no. <laughs> and I was up at his apartment where oh he boy. had a collection. It was a tiny apartment, but he had one room that was a collection of just gag items. What do you mean? Well, like he had a card uh, that had like two uh, dishwashing liquids, and it says, oh. Here's a picture of my pride and joy. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what he would give people who asked yes. for. And he had another card that was made out of that kind of paper, like the Federal Express type envelope paper that you can't rip. And it was a <laughs> card that would say that you'd hand to a girl at a bar and it would say, if you want to have sex with me. Oh, he goes, if you don't want to have sex with me, rip this card up. <laughs> <laughs> Unreal. Let me ask you about the time. Hey, I love. Sorry, Frank. Uh, sure. Go I ahead. love that it was you know unapologetic shtick. Like, yes, <laughs> I'm the comedian. I'm not trying to be cool. I am doing the most over the top, right to the stomach joke. You know, I miss that kind of comedy. Just where, don't, just don't they still have his 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 fiddle still hanging in the Friars Club? I think isn't it, it is. Yeah, I think it up is. in that in that George Burns room. We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing, colossal podcast. But first, a word from our sponsor. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. How did you and Gilbert first meet, I think? Wait, why do you, wait, why do you think, why do you think Gil, Frank, why do you think Henny had such a small... Why, why didn't he have a nice place and help? And Why did he live like that into his it's, old age? It's interesting. Well, he's married, wasn't he? I don't know. Yeah, I don't, that's what I mean. I don't know enough about him. And I think because he lived directly across the street from William Morris, he once hung out a sign outside his window that said, Hire thy neighbor. <laughs> <laughs> and working at a wedding for $100 yes. and living in a small apartment. You got to admire the work ethic. You wonder what happened to his, or I guess he never had a big break. Or, but if, if we're still talking about him all these years later, he must have made some money. You got to wonder. Well, he never had that yeah. series. He never had that sort of that mega break. But I mean, he was always working, right? And you don't retire. He didn't retire. No. How did you guys meet? I think our listeners would be curious to know. What listeners? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. And we can move on to the next question. The wife and girlfriend. Don't tell That's me I'm not setting you up. <laughs> you guys meet at Catch years ago. I don't know. I don't remember meeting Gilbert. I, Gilbert I, was just somebody who I suddenly knew. Yes, I rem- you, you I, remember. I don't know. Did we know each other before CSI? Did we ever talk? We really? must have, but I don't, that, that's a good point. I bet that was our real bonding. Yeah. 
Yeah, because I don't remember any specific times where I got to talk to you until then. You were both on a CSI episode? Yeah, uh, me, Jeff, and Bobcat Goldthwaite. And uh, and um, it was CSI, like the Vegas original one. Wow. And um, I was playing a comedian, uh, a TV star comedian, who was going back to his home club in Vegas. You, you were kind of like a Seinfeld. I don't think back. so. I oh. think it was more of a uh, rock star comedian. Oh, a leather okay. jacket and chains. A and Dane Cook. Something like that. Yeah. And uh, a little bit of dice in there. Oh, yeah. Very macho, tough guy <laughs> act. And I wasn't, I wasn't doing. And I would, and I had a, a catchphrase. I forgot what it was. It was very annoying. And oh my god, I'm because I, I remember we discussed this. Like these writers who th- don't understand how a joke is constructed <laughs> or how a catchphrase. And it was something like, "It's it's a terrible life." Don't you just love it? Oh yeah, yeah. you're right. It was, it was something awful. like that. It didn't flow at all. Right. So, yeah. it, so the, you know, I didn't really have any funny shtick, you know. And I mentioned Dane and Dyson only in that it was a, supposed to be like a very sort of a, a charismatic, over the top uh, personality. Um, but as far as the comedy of it, it's so funny when drama writers try to write for a, oh my the, God. someone to play a comedy. They It would have been better to just get one of those guys, probably, to, to do something funny. But anyway, one of the characters uh, put... Uh, the whole thing was that I die on stage. Yes. I, everyone hates me. I have this annoying catchphrase. I'm really mean to the audience. And then I, every time I take a sip of my drink... Um, I'm killing myself. So by the third or fourth sip, I die right there on stage in front of the audience. And at first, uh, they think I'm kidding. And then, of course, I do one last little shake and I'm dead. And then the whole episode is, in other words, I die in the opening credits. Then they have to figure out if it was Gilbert or Bobcat that, <laughs> wow, that poisoned me. I can't believe I haven't seen this. That, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> Required viewing. Yeah, that's a real Sir Conan Doyle material wow. right there. Yeah, uh, yeah. It was a choice between you had to decide because both of us uh, hated you for stealing our jokes. I think. And then, and then, and then, I spent the rest of the week as a dead body on a, a sled. <laughs> and they would see all the other things that I did, like. I got a blowjob from one of the oh, waitresses. Yeah. They put coke on my dick, and she had to pretend to be blowing me in the back alley. Like they they flash back the entire lead up to my murder when they finally determined that Bobcat's character, my opening act, poisoned me. That first they thought it was the waitress, then uh-huh. they thought it was the bartender, or I think Gilbert. Or what were you playing? I I was another comedian, right? But another one, like basically a red herring. There, you know, it's yeah. like I said, oh, that he's doing my bit at one point. So it's a they, show. They got a red herring who actually eats herring. Yeah. <laughs> now, and I think when the waitress is blowing you, yeah. this is, it's you stop her. Before you actually come, that—that's part of your. You really character. remember this episode? Yes. Wow. Yes, because that's part of your character. To yeah, keep, I wanted to go on and all revved up. Yes, right, right, right. So he's. Yeah. Wow. Right. It's like Robert. You really Blatt. remember this? I don't think yes. I ever actually saw the yes. whole episode. So. It was fine writing. Yeah. 
and and um, it was a popular episode because people bring it up all the time. And I somewhere there's a Polaroid I have of me. Uh, and you know what? I, it was so real, dying, and then seeing myself as a dead body and all that, and and laying there that I did have nightmares for a week or two after that uh, about dying and stuff like that on stage. I it was very uh, method acting. And and this of course leads us to the obvious jokes, which is well, you've died on stage many times. <laughs> <laughs> it was cool, but I do remember getting to talk to Gilbert out by the trailers. We had long days. What um, year is this approximately? Um, this That's is probably early two thousands. No, I can tell you when it was because uh, uh, the Jimmy Kimmel live show had just launched on ABC. Okay. Um, because I was doing both at the same time that week. I was guest ho- co-hosting with Jimmy. Uh, and doing CSI from 7 in the morning to like 6. Then Jimmy's show was live back then, so I was able to get there for the night live thing. And uh, um, I remember they got a kick out of the fact that I, they wouldn't, I wouldn't come to rehearsal, uh, so they would just mess with me and do stuff that night that I wasn't prepared for. And I only had a half hour to eat and take a shower and get my makeup on. And they'd always have a steak or whatever I ordered. And just as I was about to take a bite, Jimmy's cousin Sal would walk in and knock it on the floor. <laughs> so I'd have to go on live hungry and, and, and pissed off. And they thought that was so funny. And didn't, you, didn't they film you falling to the ground dead like 50 yeah. times in a row? Yeah, they have on CSI. <laughs> I do remember that it was a there was a B story in the episode that had children. So there were kids out on location. We were mm-hmm. way out in the valley somewhere. It was very very hot, and um, you know it was too hot to stay in your trailer. So Gilbert and I would stand outside in the shade and chit chat. And um, do you remember this? Yes. Like two trailers away would be these little kids and their parents. Mm. Or their, you know, whoever their their teacher was on set, their child actors, and uh, Gilbert would say really terrible <laughs> sexual, <laughs> racist shit, just loud enough for them to hear him, but not quite know what he said. Not Gilbert. Yeah. Yeah, I was. I- so you just see the parents kind of look over and then go back, and you know they would just see us either laughing or trying to cover it up. I, yeah, I, I, it's surprising to think of me saying something disgusting. But, yeah, I was constantly saying yeah. something really disgusting and, and perverted and bigoted. And oh, my God. But it was completely <laughs> random and had nothing to do with anything. Like Yeah, I would go out of my way when I see a little kid go by. <laughs> I don't even think I'm going to... Re- I, I remember the things you said, but I'm not even going to expose you because it's too—it's so out of context. There'd but be some little two-year-old girl walking past and forget it. I would say, boy, I bet she likes... Yeah. Let's just say uh, NC. I bet she would love some NC. You guys can spend an hour now and, trying to and, figure out what mm-hmm. that stands And if for. any of you uh, can call with the correct answer... <laughs> If you're among our first caller to tell us what NC stands for. So that's how we killed time, and that's when I realized that Gilbert really had nothing to lose in life. <laughs> he was completely fine with getting fired from this CSI. I was like, there's a guy who he knows who he is and where he's going. He where is, is not, he going? I, I admired Gilbert in that he, he not only... Uh, uh, 
he, what do you call it? A push the envelope, but he, he rubbed his dick all over. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I've lost so many jobs since then. That's why. <laughs> yeah, but every time you get in a fight or an argument or you lose a job, it, it winds up being a part of your uh, street cred. Yeah. <laughs> you have so much street cred, you'll be living on the streets. Yeah. <laughs> Now, you you were over. <laughs> if we could stop talking about NC. Do you have a commercials on this? Or no, what, I, what no happens? And, and, and none forthcoming after that story. No. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, were at, you told me you were at uh, Sid Caesar's birthday party. And who else showed up, that last one, who you told uh, me? Um. I remember. Oh, this last yeah. one. Yes, at oh, his house. Oh, just recently. Yeah. I mean, last year. Oh, oh. Well, he he would have his uh, his pals back over from your show of shows. You have your Mel Brooks and Carl Reiner and Rudy DeLuca, and uh, Dick Van Dyke would be a regular. And Sid would have these little dinner parties where he got to. Uh, he didn't get out much in the end. He was very frail. Sid Caesar, the great legendary sketch comedian. He was a great guy. Sid had the best laugh. Somewhere I have a picture of him just laughing that I would look at. <laughs> He's a, such a funny guy. And those writers for your show of shows, they all still cared about him and loved him. He discovered them. He nurtured them. Mel Brooks, Neil Simon, Woody Allen, Larry Gelbart, they all say was the smartest, funniest one out of all of them. So I have fond memories of hanging out with Sid and those guys. And just for uh, the Jewish holidays... Uh, we all got together at Sid's house just to reminisce one more time, even without Sid, which was really beautiful. Mel Brooks uh, helped organize that. He really, really admired Sid. And, you know, Sid was in a wheelchair. He was um, sort of, uh, his mind was um, not as sharp, you know, and uh, he couldn't hear so well. But when Mel Brooks walked in with Carl, they would always drive in together, uh, Mel would walk right out in front of the wheelchair and get right in Sid's face, and he'd say, "Sid, it's Mel Brooks and Carl Reiner," <laughs> <laughs> like they were on a stage, you know. And Sid would light up and laugh, and you know, you know, you know. Sid would look up and go, "When are we going on?" <laughs> and he'd just joke right back, and we got him singing and stuff, and. You know, it's so. It, one of the fun things is, you know, these shows, they come and go. You have a gig here and there. But the friends you make along the sure. way, the relationships you get to have, that's what really sustains us. And one of the reasons that I love being a comedian. Talk a little bit about the B. Arthur uh, incident. Uh, Jeff, hardcore comedy fans will know that you and B developed a relationship and it came off of an incident at one of the Comedy Central roasts. <laughs> B. Arthur was one of those people who uh, I grew up saying she really is one of the funniest people. You know, I would see her do stuff and see my, you know, family crack up at the mm-hmm. Golden Girls. And when she was on All in the Family, I was a little, little boy. Oh, sure. But I didn't ever think I'd be in the same room with her in a million years, you know. This is like... Uh, couldn't possibly happen. So there we are. Suddenly now I find myself um, producing these Comedy Central roasts 
for the Friars Club. I'm like a, you know, uh, a guy who would help put together the dais, the comedians. I'd help people write their material. And Jerry Stiller agreed to be roasted. It was a big honor to him to have a Friars roast his whole life. He said that's something he really wanted. And, uh, and you know, his son Ben Stiller came and Janine Garofalo and um, Jason Alexander uh, who was at the height of his fame on Seinfeld with Jerry Stiller at the time, and um, Kevin James, and let's see, a bunch of other funny, funny people did that one. Well, Seinfeld wasn't there, and you had a memorable line about why he wasn't there. I said, Jerry Seinfeld wanted to be here today, but he's fucking a model on a pile of cash. <laughs> <laughs> right line. Um... But I didn't, you know, sort of a surprise to me. There's B. Arthur. I didn't, I probably knew she was going to be there, but it didn't really register of like, wow, I'm up here with her. And I felt a little guilty not mentioning her. I loved her. I mean, she was somebody who, you know, according to the people who wrote for the Golden Girls and so on, and that she was, and Maude, that she could, if you wrote a B joke in the script, she could turn it into an A joke a home run, if you will, uh, just by a look or adding a little, you know, eyebrow to it. And suddenly you had a great big blow, a great act break or whatever. Mm-hmm. She would just save the day all the time with the, uh, for the writers. Uh, not to say that they didn't have good writers on those shows, but she really could uh, make the writers look good. And I was like, wow, you know, I just can't imagine not calling her out or mentioning her. And I didn't really think to say anything sincere. That wasn't my style back then. I just was swinging for home runs, as Milton advised. And uh, here I was just a few years after my first roast, and now um, we're on TV, you know? So now there's a cameras that could, you could have a close-up. You know, you can make fun of somebody and get right in their face. And um, I write down in the margin, I have my script of all the jokes I've been working on, and I write down in the margin, um, B. Arthur's dick. (laughs) I don't know what I'm going to say yet or where or when, but I'm late in the show, and I'm just watching this all go down, and I'm just thinking somewhere in here, they got to mention B. Arthur's dick. (laughs) She's the new Milton Berle. (laughs) And um, Sandra Bernhard, who I actually love seeing at these roasts because she always tries something different. And this time she tried singing to Jerry Stiller. She was doing a cabaret show at the time and she had a little band put together. And um, she always tries something different. And I love that about her. And she went out and sang... uh, uh, I forgot, but she put Jerry's name into a song. It was like Magic Man or something. I can't remember. Somebody, oh, it was a heart song. It was. Yeah, I yeah. think it was. Yeah, yeah. And didn't necessarily go over as big as she had hoped. And Jerry Stiller, she kind of did a, uh, uh, she like writhed on him. She gave him a little lap dance while she sang it, which if you know Jerry, he doesn't like cursing, let alone he would wince. He'd get very embarrassed especially with his wife and his son, Ben Stiller, and Ann Mira sitting not far away. And uh, I think uh, it was a little 
awkward. Mm-hmm. And suddenly, uh, I get introduced. <laughs> so I don't even get one joke out. I just go, Sandra Bernhard, holy shit. I wouldn't fuck you with B. Arthur's dick. <laughs> and boom. I might as well have just gotten off on that joke. The joke's okay. But they cut to her looking at me as if it was a scene in a sitcom. And she didn't have a response. She just stared at me and let the laugh go and go and go and go. And uh, then she did the finger. She looked at me like, I'm going to get you, you know. Oh, yeah. And she just made my B joke into an A moment. And it, it made me realize, you know, how important it is to connect, you know, not just read a bunch of jokes off a piece of paper, but, you know, find moments that are real moments and look at the other person and, and try to make it personal. Don't say joke about about someone, say it to them. And that's one of the tricks. And she, uh, you know, I didn't really see her afterwards. I didn't think too much about it because I did the rest of my roast and I had other responsibilities that day. And then as the weeks and days, days and weeks went on, I was hearing about this joke everywhere I went. People would stop me on the street and yell, B. Arthur's dick. And <laughs> people would send me pictures of B. Arthur and, 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 and constantly quote that joke. And, and I realized that the joke was more famous than I was because they wouldn't even know my name, but they knew that I told that joke. And I go, gosh, wow, if I'm hearing about it, I wonder what she's hearing. You know, <laughs> she must be, someone must be saying something about it to her. Um, and I remember it got written up in Time Out New York as one of the great TV moments of the year. And suddenly I thought, this is like, I'm making a career off this ridiculous improv. And quite a bit of time went by. And I. I, it became so out of control that I thought I needed to talk to her about it. I wonder if she, I wanted it to be a good memory for her and not weird. And I hadn't done it, I wasn't the roast master, general, whatever, back then. I was just a comedian doing the roast, and I wanted B. Arthur to be uh, my friend if I ever saw her again. I don't know. I don't know why I did it. I guess I just uh, felt like I needed some sort of closure with her. <laughs> and I saw that she was doing a one woman show. Uh, in L.A. at some theater. It was a benefit for, I believe, an animal charity of some kind. So I bought one ticket. I went. I bought flowers. I went to see this uh, show. And it was great. And she sang and told funny stories. And she did the whole thing barefoot at a, you know, a theater, a very beautiful theater in L.A. And there was a long line of well-wishers afterwards. I somehow got my way backstage. And... Uh, I waited to the end. I got out at the very end of the line because I wanted to be able to uh, talk to her and not just rush through for a picture or a handshake. And uh, um, I handed her the flowers, and she said, thank you. I said, B, uh, maybe I even said Miss Arthur. I don't know if you remember me, but uh, we met at Jerry Stiller's. And she goes, you nailed me, you prick. <laughs> That's great. And, you know, we took some pictures, and she gave me a nice uh, hug, and um, she wound up coming back to the roast. She did the Pam Anderson roast after that, and so it was good that I went, I think, and um, it's a fond memory. She was 
still one of my all-time favorite funny people. I remember meeting B. Arthur just once, and it was like, it wasn't even like, you know, trying to be funny. Uh, it was at some event, and I was backstage, and I run into B. Arthur, and she goes, you know, hi, Gilbert, how are you? <laughs> and I said, don't find B. And she goes, uh, so you're still living in the same place? And I go, yeah. And you? And she goes, yeah. And then we're talking, making small talk uncomfortably. And then there's a pause, and B. Arthur goes, do I really know you, or do we just know each other from TV? And I said, I think we know each other from TV. And she turns around and walks away. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. Wow. You think she was trying to be funny? I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I figure... It was one of those, it really was one of those moments. We both saw each other on TV, and we assumed we knew each other, but we really didn't. So she knew there was nothing to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> and, oh, <laughs> we will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast after this. Now let's let's talk about this was one of my uh, finest moments, uh, and and you were the producer and the MC and everything. And that was um, at the U Hefner roast. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Oh, in two thousand one. Yeah, I was uh, not the MC, but I was uh, one of the comedians, and I did uh, produce that show. It was. Um, just what two weeks or two and a half weeks after nine yeah. eleven? There was still like black smoke in the air all over New York. They elected a new pope. Uh, <laughs> that's white smoke. Jeff. Oh, that's well, white smoke. <laughs> we were going to do the Hugh Hefner roast in New York, and. There hadn't been a, uh, a, he had been the biggest roastie we had done, you know. This was Hugh Hefner at the height of his ridiculousness with seven blonde girlfriends, and it was going to be a great roast. I mean, we had so many funny people lined up, and suddenly, you know, <clears throat> plans change. There was 9-11, and everything obviously shut down in New York. Uh, um, you didn't know what. It was scary. And we all know what that's about. And were you in New York at the time? Oh, yeah. I was in yeah, L.A., actually. And, you know, there's a couple days there where you don't know what's going on. And, you know, as a comedian, you're like, all right, well, I'm going to have some time off. This yeah. is not going to be... You know, there's no late night shows. There's no Sunday Night Live. There's no comedy clubs. Uh, the world has changed. Even yeah, I remember all of New York was walking around like like zombies. Right. And I remember I was riding down an elevator in my building. And there was a guy standing there, and neither one of us said anything. We just kind of like looked at each other and sort of slightly shrugged our shoulders. There was mm. like nothing to be said. Such a Everybody was speechless, and, you know, the, all the news was that it was all bad, and there was 
you know, missing people, so it was an emergency lockdown. There, there was uh, that's something for people not in New York. There was all over the city uh, on fences photos of people, like they were still looking for them, hoping they would show up, hoping they had amnesia from the event and would pop up somewhere. Oh, you know, and. <clears throat> I remember Dave Chappelle was in my... I had Dave Chappelle and Adam Ferrara, the two comedians, were living further downtown, and they came to my apartment at 300 Mercer Street, and we spent the night just sort of up on the roof, and we walked around, and it was kind of like you want to give blood, but there were no survivors, so the hospital sent us away, and you just sort of... You know, you twiddle your thumbs, and you go, I'm in the middle of a war zone, and I can't do anything to help myself or help anybody else. And I remember with the photos on the fences, all I could think is like, oh, my God, don't these people know these people aren't going to just pop up? Right. So what do you do? You know, you, you know you're in, I'm in my apartment, and I go... Even my manager at the time, Bernie Brillstein, was scared. Yeah. When old people are scared, you go, this is some serious shit. What the hell is happening here? And, you know, you start to figure out, all right, it was a terrorist attack, and uh, it seems to be uh, over, uh, and now it's um, New York smells, it's smoldering, and, you know, everybody's walking around, including me, with... Your mouth and nose covered by your shirt because you're essentially inhaling the World Trade Center yeah. and everything that was inside. You're you're inhaling uh, ashes of dead people. Right. So I had, uh, you start to get stir crazy, and by that weekend, I went down the street from my apartment to the comedy cellar, and the only people there were the stragglers, tourists essentially from other countries, uh, who couldn't get out of the couldn't get out of New York. Right, because so, all the airports were shut right, down, and they, and they were uh, either crashing on couches or in hotels, and they wandered into the comedy cellar for uh, some air conditioning and uh, maybe an hour of uh, thinking about something else. And I remember doing a couple jokes. I can't remember what they were. But um, I said, no, that kind of felt good, actually. You know, it's not for the general public, just for the few people that want to hear them. Here they come down to the comedy cellar, and then I go home that night, and I'm like, fuck, man, it's a cliche now. But back then, you say, well, you know, the show must go on, or the terrorists win. The terrorists win. That's all you ever heard. If you don't go on with you know, and at this point, they were winning. We were fucked. This was like... This was 3,000 dead people in the Pentagon, and this was like, you know, all is lost. And I go, well, you know, now it's a few days later, and I go, what are we going to do with this roast? We have all these uh, trucks and camera trucks and crew unrented. You know, we have the Hilton rented. It's all um, paid for, and we have to decide, basically, uh, by Monday afterwards, what we're gonna if we're gonna if we're gonna cancel it, or we have to commit to these expenses, you know. And with Comedy Central, there's always this lavish party afterwards, and it's a black tie affair, and you know, it's um, it's uh, it would be uh, um, inappropriate. But I thought, well, what if we cancel the party but do the show? What if we give all the uh, 
uh, proceeds to the party to the Twin Tower Fund and make this almost a benefit. In fact, uh, you know, uh, the first benefit post 9-11 would be October 2nd. So uh, I wrote a letter out to uh, the Friars Club um, and to uh, Comedy Central and to uh, Hugh Hefner. And I sent it to all of them on that weekend, and the response started coming in. And the hardest part would be how to get Hugh Hefner and his blonde pussy posse out to New York because uh, none of the comedians uh, were necessarily going to come unless, uh, you know, they felt safe. And it was Jimmy Kimmel was going to MC, and there was Adam Carolla and Cedric the Entertainer and... Um, Sarah. Sarah Silverman. And, um, you know, all these other people that were coming just to be there. There's you and Ice-T and, uh, you know, uh, Stephen Colbert was there. Stephen Carell was there. And um, I think Triumph and those um, Smigel was there. And um, it was taking hold that if Hef would come, then everybody would. And... You know, my point in the letter was that Hef is the very reason that terrorists hate us. He's a, por- you know, a, a pornographer, and he's a, a, a very outspoken person about free speech. He was the first uh, cl- uh, um, club owner, uh, casino owner, to uh, book uh, black comedians to do a regular stand-up act. And yeah, I Dick remember, Gregory yeah, was going to come out. He, he was at the Rose. And if you cancel this, it really is the terrorist... One more little notch on their victory belt. They go, this is the very guy the terrorists hate. Fuck it. Let's just do a show and whatever it is. It'll be a document of that time. And uh, um, maybe, it'll, maybe, it'll, maybe it'll be a feel good to the people that are there. And maybe it won't. But canceling it, it just didn't sit well with me. And Hef, to his credit, came out. And Sarah and Jimmy and all those... Uh, funny comedians came out. We did still put on our tuxedos out of respect for Hef. And it wound up being not just a good show, but like a great show. I remember the mayor of New York uh, sent a proclamation giving his, us his, uh, his blessing. And I remember um, it being extremely well attended, uh, packed to the roof at the New York Hilton. And Jimmy Kimmel did an amazing job as the host. He really set the tone, and uh, he got the first laughs and kind of got the thing rolling. And I felt a sense of sort of relief, like a little tension came out of everybody's uh, shoulders. People were laughing. Rob Schneider, who uh, is a funny guy, went on, and uh, he had a couple good jokes, and a couple jokes didn't work. And um, there hadn't been a reference to 9-11 really in the show yet. Um, and I ran over and I put my arm around him in front of everybody and I said, uh, Rob, uh, uh, let's keep going. Uh, let's get on with it. Hasn't there been enough bombing in this city? <laughs> <laughs> Which is an easy joke, but the right joke in the moment. And um, it wound up being one of the best. And then Gilbert went on at the end and ruined everything. <laughs> Gilbert went on that night and told uh, a joke about <clears throat> wanting a connection. Well, maybe you I, should tell I, it. Yeah, I said, uh, I, I have to leave early tonight. I have to fly out to L.A. I couldn't get a direct flight. We have to make a stop at the Empire State <laughs> Building. 
You know, and, and somebody yelled too soon. And I thought it meant I didn't take a long enough pause between the setup and the punchline <laughs> when he said that. Thought I should have said two, three, four. Ah, Empire State Building. <laughs> and then, and that's what that moment to me also symbolizes how uh, how people take offense and what they're okay with. And because it, it was like after the booing and hissing and getting up from their tables and. Then I, I go into the aristocrats where I'm talking about uh, the mothers fucking the son and the dogs uh, blowing the father. And, and they're, they're like cheering. And I thought, so terrorist attacks are bad taste, but incest and bestiality are fine. You were just warming up and they were yeah. going to go on that journey, or at least some of them were and some of them weren't. But, but when somebody yelled too soon and you heard that... Did you start to panic? I I remember being a well. I certainly had that feeling after the joke when they yelled too soon. That I I don't know if I was there for like three seconds or two hundred years because mm. it's like I'd lost the audience as much as anybody has ever lost an audience. Mm. But you adjusted and went, did you stick with yeah. your plan or did you, yeah, I, did you I, plan to do the aristocrats? No, no, no. I just figured at this point, I, there's nothing further to lose. <laughs> I might as well talk about uh, a boy eating his mother's twat, you know? So I, I go into that and it's like uh, they're cheering, you know, it was like... <laughs> I remember it being cathartic. I remember looking to my left and seeing Jimmy Kimmel um, essentially crying with laughter. And I remember seeing Rob Schneider at a certain point fall off his chair and was like crawling on the floor. Yes, he was rolling around on the floor. And that was like the greatest moment for me was like, aside from the audience cheering and laughing, was getting to look at the other comics on the dais laughing. How many times have you had previously told that joke? I don't think I've ever told it on stage before. Really? Uh, yeah. In person, I mean, I've told it. But I, I don't think I've ever... I think that's the first time I've ever said it on stage. Were you doing jokes in your act at that point? Uh, yeah. I Well, I started off with... Um, I said, tonight I'll be uh, going by my Muslim name, Hasn't Been Laid. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember I was following Ice-T, and Ice-T was up there going, you know, I'm going to kill you white motherfuckers, and I'm going to rape you white bitches. Right. So I went on and said, Ice-T stole my whole act. <laughs> And I said, but I'm doing it anyway. I'm going to kill you white motherfuckers. And I'm going to rape some of you white bitches. Is my recollection correct? Were you wearing a waiter's jacket? <laughs> so there's I'm, the added element I, of complete silliness. Oh, my God. It was... Why were you wearing a waiter's okay, jacket? A white tuxedo no, jacket? Yes, a long white tuxedo yeah. jacket like, like that a dorky teenager would have as a graduation. <laughs> I got that jacket when 14th Street still had shitty places around where you could go into a store and buy anything and you didn't know and it was so cheap you just bought it and there was like it was like a prom tux yeah yeah, yeah. and there was a 
tuxedo place going out of business. Darrett's <laughs> on 14th Street. And, and there was this white tuxedo jacket, long white, like the length that Groucho Marx would wear. And one of those bits were practically to my ankles. A white, bright white tuxedo. And uh, I think I got it for like $5. Wow. <laughs> So I wore that, and I had a t. Uh, I I had a, a a bow tie that I bought in another store for about twenty five cents. <laughs> Just I for the put, roast. <laughs> I, I had already had this in my closet, and I thought, oh, I'm doing a roast. This this will be. <laughs> I've, got, I've got the perfect outfit. <laughs> So, so the Twin Towers collapsed, and you went right down to the neighborhood for some uh, going-out-of-business sales. God. I, th- I wanted on the death of 3,000 people oh, with a $5 tuxedo. Unreal. <laughs> Unreal. It was all—I had had that shit lying around my apartment thinking, I'll never use this. And then when, <laughs> when the were plane— a red tie? I, I think it was a black tie. I'm not sure. It's a black, I'll was, have to look. It's a, I'm sorry, I know this, but yeah. it was a black tie oh, okay. and a white tuxedo jacket. <laughs> and then when the plane crashed into the World Trade Center, I thought, oh, I can uh, put on that jacket now. <laughs> Gilbert, I have to ask, was this a, the, the 9-11 material? <laughs> Does it, was it something that you came up with that night? Was it something that you thought about for weeks? Uh, no, no. I had like it was like shortly before I was like just sort of thinking of it. And you and thought thinking, I'm, I'm the guy that's going to go for this? Yeah, I, I, you know, I like I want to be the first one to make the most obscenely tasteless September 11th joke. And then an ad lib leads to a movie. Yeah. <laughs> the you know what? They didn't even know about that. Yeah. They interviewed me for the Aristocrats, Paul and Paul Prevenz and Penn. And um, they didn't know about it, believe it or oh. not. And I said, um, is this the joke? Are you guys talking about the joke that Gilbert did at the 9-11 roll? And it, it didn't occur to me that, it, that, that we didn't use that part of your act on the broadcast on Comedy Central. So no, no, unless you were there, yeah, they didn't it, know you did the aristocrats joke. And I didn't really know the joke. And, you know, I, I, didn't, I didn't even realize when, they, when I when they first asked me to be a part of that documentary, that that's the same joke you did. And um, I said, oh, you got to track down Paul Provenza. His movie, uh, you got to see when Gilbert did that joke. They didn't even know. And I couldn't believe wow. that they didn't know. I, I was like, corrected. you're making this not knowing yeah. that always, that happened? I always thought the incident inspired of course. Paul and Penn to do the film. No, I told them. And then I helped them track down the, uh, the uh, rough footage. Because I had worked on that show, with you. so uh, I was very proud that they did indeed track you down and broke that into the documentary. Is essentially became the soul of that movie, um, which you know showed all the comedians, and I thought it was a very cool doc and showed what we do as an art form, not necessarily as. Um, it was just great. It showed comedy as jazz, and it showed how different personalities. You know, make a difference, and then you and Bob were the, you and Bob Saget were the heart of that movie. I thought. And I, I remember. Well, I remember when they showed it on TV. You don't see the aristocrats, obviously, or they just have to play a siren through right, the whole right, thing. Right. A bleep. 
And it's like, I think about 80% of what I did was cut out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's all right. It's a movie. But people yeah. got that. And I love, I love, I love that we, uh, our little 9-11 Hugh Hefner roast is still something comedy fans are talking about. Anyway. You want to talk about, t- tell us about uh, performing for the troops. Because I was reading about it in your book. There's he no- worked for the Third Reich. Yeah, that was the interesting part. It was when the Jews were being let off. Uh, Jeff Ross thought, hey, I can make a dollar performing for uh, Hitler's troops. And um, and I thought, and in all fairness, he wasn't working a lot at the time, so he needed the money. You know, Hitler, for all his faults, his, you know, he paid talent. He took care of talent. Out of the illusion, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, for all his faults, he had a great, very generous laugh. And uh, <laughs> I remember one year, years ago, I was um, at Catch a Rising Star as the backup comedian, and I used to sit by the bar and hear comedians, uh, you know, just talking shop, and I was absorbing it all. And you know, one comedian was complaining that a guitar act was up there um, taking the big weekend spots. You know, in other words, an act that, you know, um, a lot of people would say should be on a cruise ship. Somebody who did song parodies or something. And uh, and, and the other comedian said, um, well, well, what are you talking about? You know, uh, he's popular. People love him. And the first comedian said, Hitler drew. <laughs> it doesn't mean it's a good act just because he was popular. <laughs> I'll always do shows for the troops. Hopefully we won't always have uh, troops in harm's way, but there's no better audience, no more appreciative. By the way, no more sophisticated audience than an army or a military audience. Um, Interesting. They're diverse. They come from 18 to 55, uh, and um, they um, get it. You know, you don't, they don't have to be drunk. They don't have to. It's not date night. They're there because um, they need a laugh. So I love it. I'll, I'll always uh, appreciate them. And selfishly, you never get a more uh, responsive crowd. How many times have you gone overseas to do it? I'm not even sure. I've been to Iraq uh, twice. I've been to Afghanistan. Uh, been to Germany, Djibouti, Africa. Wow. Korea. Um, Om- Oman, a couple other places. I'm not even sure where I was. <laughs> yeah, this is, if you're an entertainer, any chance to go do that, you should do that. I love it. I might go in the fall again to Afghanistan. Anything you want to talk about that's coming up? No one's still listening. You should have done it. If you asked me in the beginning, I would have happily we can plugged edit. my well, tour dates. We can, we can edit and put it up toward the front. Yes. I will be um, uh, in Atlanta this summer. I'll be in Nashville this summer. I'll be in San Francisco this summer. Um, and a whole bunch of other stuff. If you go to RoastmasterGeneral.com, my tour dates are up there. You can follow me at Real Jeffrey Ross. Tweet me some bullshit. And uh, congratulations to you and you on your new podcast. I hope this is uh, bigger than... <laughs> <laughs> All my other failures. 
Yes. <laughs> Try not to say anything that gets you condemned from show business. <laughs> it's a little late. Well, I wanna, yeah. No, no. <laughs> no, at this point, I have no jobs to lose anymore, so it's okay. Why are you dressed like a Cuban dentist? <laughs> Gilbert comes over, drinks my wine. <laughs> when are you gonna eat? What are you gonna eat after this? When when you order out. <laughs> those those almonds and mangoes are gonna disappear too. Yeah, for sure. We got some snacks from Virginia here. So anyway. Uh, <laughs> this was one of the best times I had today. <laughs> Thanks for having us over, Jeff. My pleasure. I hope this is. Uh, Thank you. How many? How many? Who else have you interviewed besides me? No one. We couldn't get anyone that stupid. <laughs> Drew Friedman, Bill Persky, uh, Billy West, Paul Schaefer coming up. Dick Cabot. Dick Cabot. Professor Bo- Irwin Corey. Oh, Boris Karloff's daughter. Really? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. What was that like? Uh, she that was did. fun. Yeah, but this this has been uh, <laughs> the amazing Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast with my pal. Jeff Can we stay Ross. on till it's no longer a good po- good show? We had a good show. Let's just stay on till it's not good. <laughs> Let's have an open ended amount of time that we could be on. We were doing I'll so just... good for fifty minutes. Let's stretch out twenty more just so people can go. Oh, it was good. First half was good. No. When you, when you first said that, all I could think is that the audience is going, and, and which part was the good part? <laughs> Here's how long the show is every week, folks, till the food gets here. <laughs> that should be the name of the show, Till the Food Gets Here with Frank and Gilbert. <laughs> they, they did research for their interviews, like, where's the nearest Chinese restaurant? That's the research they do. It's not that extensive. Great. <laughs> Lord knows the world is wondering. The podcast world wants to hear from Dick Cavett and his uh, <laughs> cutting edge of technology. <laughs> he doesn't even know you recorded him. <laughs> All right. Good luck, fellas. Oh, thank, thank you, you Jeff. Thank you for having me. I had a great time in my own living room. <laughs> Thanks for coming over. Thank you, Jeff Ross.